together. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and to perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. They're clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They're wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers, fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instinct and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Wow. You may remember when we studied Ruth that I made the comment that a lot of people have said to me, Ruth is one of my favourite books in the Bible. Let's just say no one has ever said that to me 
about Jude. And I think we can see why. It's pretty strong stuff. And here's what I want you to remember as we go through this. And we're just going to do the first four verses. We're going to get to the real meat of it next week. Here's what I want you to remember as we go through. This is the same Bible that has the lovely love story of Ruth in it. And there are hard things that we need to hear. And yet actually we're going to see that this is just as much a book about God's love as the book of Ruth was. So let's keep that in mind as we go through. And, uh, and actually, I think we're going to discover some real treasure here, some real joy. But I want to start by thinking about this generation in which we live. What do you think about this generation? How do you, I wonder what you think are the key features of our generation. Let's, let's talk about our generation, shall we? Let's all pretend we're one generation. <laughs> there may be more than one generation here, but let's go with <coughs> we're a generation. Well, particularly, let's focus in perhaps on the younger part of that generation. I wonder what we think. I've been chewing that over a little bit in my mind this week because I think it's very interesting when you look at some of the things that have happened in recent days to think about what it teaches us about our generation. So, for example, in the EU referendum, um, it's reckoned that between 18 to 25-year-olds only 36% of people voted. Now, when you get to 65, over 65-year-olds, 85, 83% of them voted. And as you go through the age brackets, every single age you go up, the percentage that people voted increases. And what, that's interesting, right? I wonder why that is. It might be that our culture, our generation is fairly disinterested, disengaged. I wonder if it shows, though, that there's something going on where our culture at the moment, particularly in London, doesn't really engage very well with the bigger questions. I think most people assume everything's going to be okay. Most people's general assumption is, well, I I don't know, but it will probably be all right. So I was watching some of the, um, the 100th anniversary of the Somme. Did you see any of that this week? Very, very moving, very humbling to think of all those thousands of men who were killed in that horrific battlefield in France. And there was a poem that was read, Siegfried Sassoon, the great poet of the war. And he asked the question in the poem, could this ever happen again? Could this ever, and and the the poem is, we must never forget, we must never forget. Could this ever happen again? I think our culture doesn't understand that question. Because most people, me, my age and younger, think, of course it can never happen again. I cannot imagine how it could ever happen that someone like Hitler could ever rise up again and cause such devastation. I I don't think that could ever happen. Because we've lived in a time when everything's been okay. We've lived in a time where things have been fairly straightforward. And I wonder if we're just beginning to wake up. Actually, perhaps it's not quite that simple. And I think it's a dangerous mentality, this mentality that just presumes everything's going to be okay. It's all right. It'll be okay. 
And that same mentality can slip into our thinking as Christians and our thinking as churches. So we can quickly begin to think, well, I'm okay, I'm a Christian, I'm trusting Jesus, I'm all right. You know, I'm not going to stop. I'm, everything's basically okay. That's fine, trusting Jesus. I can get on with my life and not worry too much about it. The book of Jude is here to say, you need to wake up. Because there is something that, we, that is worth fighting for. And it's something that we must fight for. If the book of Ruth was about running to find shelter under God's wings, finding protection and security there, the book of Jude is about fighting for something that is worth fighting for. So just look down. He tells us why he wrote it in verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, so here's Jude. He thinks, I'm going to write them a letter. I want to write to them about salvation. I want to encourage them. Look what he says. I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. There is something that must be fought for. See, I think the church that Jude was writing for, he's worried that they've adopted this kind of, oh, it will be all right. This apathetic, passive kind of attitude that I think we see in our culture, I think creeps into the church. That's dangerous. Because actually, there's something worth fighting for. And it's this thing the faith. So what we're going to do in the next three weeks is think about what does it mean to fight for the faith or to contend for this faith? And I've just got two, two big points today. Firstly, I want us to understand the heart of this faith. And secondly, the threat to this faith. Okay? Very straightforward. Before we get to that, let's just meet Jude. Allow me to introduce you to Jude. Well, actually, let's allow Jude to introduce himself to us. Hello, Jude. Who are you? Uh, I've got to say, Jude has got a rank as one of the most humble people I've ever not met. Now, the reason I say that, look how he introduced himself. Jude, this is verse 1, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Now, you might not spot it, that is a phenomenally humble thing to say. Because James... We know, from, uh, we know from the book called James and elsewhere, James was the brother of Jesus. James was Jesus' little brother. So Mary, contrary to the teaching of the Catholic Church, went on to have other children uh, after she had Jesus. And James was one of those. But if Jude is the brother of James, then that makes him one of Jesus' little brothers. And yet he doesn't mention it. I think if Jesus was my big brother, I think I'd pull that one. <laughs> I think I'd lean on that. Jude, little brother of Jesus. And yet Jude, Jude talk, says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. Do you see how humble that is? But Jude wouldn't always have said that. In fact, we know that when Jesus was on earth and was doing his ministry and was preaching and was healing people, actually his brothers thought he was out of his mind. There's a time when they come to kind of try and take control of him, say, sorry everyone, this Jesus lost it, lost it, he's completely out of his mind. Jude didn't get it. 
And yet at some point, after Jesus had died and risen again, Jude came to a point, we don't know how, we don't know what happened, Jude comes to a point saying, I think my big brother might be the son of God. That's quite an alarming discovery, isn't it? (laughs) If you're a little brother here, or if you've got a big brother, that's quite an alarming discovery to think, my big brother is the son of God and the saviour of the world. And here is Jude, this humble man who simply says, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. You've got to love that about Jude. Challenges my pride. It challenges how quickly I want to name drop. <laughs> so, oh yes, I go to this church, or I had lunch with so and rubbish. Okay, servant of Jesus Christ. But that brings us now to the heart of the gospel. Okay, the heart of the faith. Have a look at how verse one goes. Three words that sum up what it means to be a Christian. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Those are three loaded words. He, like Jude, kind of heaps a whole pile of theology into those three words and says, here it is, this is what my gospel is. It's about being called, loved, and kept. So let's just chew on that for a second, okay? If you're a Christian here this afternoon, I want you to to feel... Those three words. Not just to know it, but to actually find a joy in that. If you're not a Christian here, I want to be crystal clear with you about what it means to be a Christian. And the great obvious thing about those three words is that they're all things that are done to you rather than things that you do. You have been called. You have been loved. You have been kept. It's all about what's being done to you. They are passive things. Where God takes the initiative. It's all about God. The gospel is about God. It's about his initiative. Let's take called. The first time God called anyone is quite an extraordinary time. It's right back at the very start of the Bible in Genesis chapter, tw- uh, Genesis chapter 3. And what happens is the human beings have been made by God, good world, all good, beautiful, nice trees, good fruit, two trees, one tree can eat, one tree can't eat. Don't eat that fruit, Adam and Eve. Love me, don't eat that fruit. Adam and Eve, huh, forget you, eat fruit. Ah, we're naked, what do we do? Clothes, let's hide. This is an abridged version. (laughs) They go, they hide behind a bush. Then God comes, and it says in Genesis chapter 3, God called to the man, where are you? He called. And I want you to understand this. This is the nature of what God is like. God calls. He comes looking. So often, you hear people talking about, I'm on a journey, I'm on a hunt, I'm looking for God, I'm seeking God, I'm trying to find God. As if God is somehow hiding. Where have you gone, God? Can you not see that right from the very beginning, it's not God who's hiding. Humans hide from God, God doesn't hide from humans. God comes calling. See, hide and seek, right, I mean, what a 
ridiculous waste of time that is. <laughs> but it's fun, lots of fun. I played hide and seek once with a little child, and um, I hid under this. It was under a bed, I think. It was a brilliant hiding place. And this child was very, very little. And they were hunting for ages. And I must have been in a particularly obnoxious mood that day because I just lay really quietly. <laughs> and she just couldn't find me anywhere. And she, she looked everywhere. In the end, she sat down in the, in the middle of the floor in, our, in the room and just said, Oh, I can't find him anywhere. And I said, because at this point I realised it wasn't fun <laughs> for her, I said, Look under the bed. And she said, I've looked there already. <laughs> and I think that a lot of people's experience, they kind of imagine that God is sort of hiding somewhere and it's like, oh, I don't know where he is. Look, you can see it, can't you? God is not hiding. He calls. And then throughout the Bible, over and over again, God calls. He calls Abraham. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. He calls Moses to be the rescuer of of Israel from a burning bush he calls out to Moses over and over again God calls he calls he calls it's a very important thing because it means the initiative starts with God he calls us and then of course through Jesus as he sends Jesus into the world Jesus is God's great call and the call has gone out to all people. Come, come to Jesus. Okay, let's just do a little bit of theology for a second. I realise it's quite a warm Sunday afternoon and we're feeling slightly sleepy, but this will wake you up because theology always is fun. And um, there are two ways to understand this call. Firstly, there is what is called the general call. In other words, all people are called to come. All people are called to come. God says, come, all you who are weary, anyone, come, 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 come to me. All people are called. There's the general call. But then there is what is called, and this is a rubbish word, but it's the word people use. Then there is the effectual call. That's a nasty word, but it's a, it means a good thing. And the effectual call is the call that actually has an effect and works. So the best example of an effectual call is when Jesus stands at the tomb of Lazarus, dead body, and he goes, Lazarus, come out. He's dead, right? He's dead, okay? And he's calling him. And yet that call has the power to raise Lazarus from the dead and come out. Now that is called the effectual call. That means that when... When the message of Jesus is preached, there's a general call. But as it's preached, the very message has the power to raise people, to call people from the dead and to come. Does that make any sense? Don't worry too much if you're completely lost. You just have to remember God calls. Um, and God calls to us. It starts with him. Now, we do then call on him. We do call on his name, but he first calls us. So that's, that's my first big thing about being a Christian. It means you can say, I've been called by God. But secondly, who does God call? How does he decide who he's going to call? What, how does that work? Well, secondly, look, those who are loved. Those who are loved in God the Father. You see, God 
calls those who he loves. Now, how does he decide who he loves? Well, do you know, the Bible says that God loves people because he loves them. Look, let's, uh, this idea of God's love, I, I, I really want to, I guess all of us would say, oh yeah, God loves the world, that's his job, he's supposed to love everybody, and he loves people. I want to ask you this afternoon, do you think he loves you? Do you think he loves you? Are you convinced that he loves you? Because to be a Christian means to be someone who can say, I am loved in God the Father. His love embraces me. And of course, that question, as soon as you say, does God love me? You say, well, oh, I don't know. Uh, how do I decide? I guess I could decide by looking at myself and saying, well, do I seem like God would love? Do I seem good enough for God to love me? You know, so imagine a guy and a girl who are falling in love. Sweet. And um, and the guy's thinking, well, does she really love me? Does she really love me? How does he know? He could he could kind of look at himself and say, well, I don't know. Is it because I'm good looking? Hmm, maybe not. Is it because I'm weather I can't? I don't know. Is it because I give her nice stuff? Oh, I better give her more stuff. Because <laughs> he's looking into himself to say, what's the cause of the love? What I want you to see is that actually we don't look inwards to see whether God loves us. God does not love me because I'm such a lovely person. He loves me because he's chosen to love me. That is the magnificent thing about the gospel. So supposing you came to me and you said, John T. I, I, just, I just don't know. I'm not convinced God loves me. I'm not convinced. Well, I think I'd want to point you to that moment when God the Father gave his son and crushed his son on the cross in your place. What more can he do? What, what more could he do to show you his love for you? What more could he do to demonstrate his love? That even when I was so far from him and so unlovely, he sent his son to die for me. There's a, there was a guy um, from many years ago, a Christian uh, writer called John Owen, and he said uh, a very interesting quote. I haven't got it exactly, but this is the gist of it. The quote, um, the quote was, the greatest act that you can do against God, or the greatest unkindness you can do to God is, I wonder what you, how you finish it. The greatest act you can do against God, the greatest unkindness you can do to God is, whew, well, I can think of quite a few, I can think of quite a list of stuff that I could do that would be bad. He finishes the quote like this, the greatest unkindness you can do to God is to not believe that he loves you. Is to not believe he loves you. You say, well, I can think of several things more bad than that. Well, not if you understand that at the cross, he's put his love on display. At the cross, he says, I love you. 
I even gave my son for you. And at the cross, Jesus died and took your punishment upon himself. Jesus was crushed so that you could be forgiven and have life. You're not. And we turn around and say, just mm, not convinced. Do you see how that's a great act of unkindness against God? We are called, we're loved. I want you to know this afternoon that God loves you. And not in some trite, how oh, he loves me, but in a deep, powerful, emotional way, he loves you. You're called, you're loved, and you're kept. Kept for Jesus Christ. Isn't that a great picture of being kept for someone. You know, occasionally I'll go to the fridge at home and I'll open the fridge and in the fridge there'll be one piece of cheesecake. Oh, cheesecake. <laughs> and just as I'm about to take the cheesecake and enjoy it, someone in my house <laughs> who isn't me will come running and say, No, no, no. <laughs> That's, that piece is kept for someone else who then becomes my greatest enemy. <laughs> the idea is, that pe- no, no, that, that, that piece is protected. It's not a free fall. That's, that's a protected piece. And the gospel, when God calls someone and then says, I love you through Jesus, he then says, and now I'm going to protect, I'm going to keep you. For my son Jesus. And so when someone, when the devil comes and tries to sneak and grab hold of us, God says, get off. He's kept. She's kept. Kept for Jesus Christ. Now I want you to see this, okay? You do not start the Christian life by doing anything. You're called. You do not keep going in the Christian life by doing anything. You're kept. It's kept. Kept by grace. God, 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 all the time. We love to think, okay, lovely, grace gets me started, but then I can give up on that. Have I told you about when I learned to ride a bike? I, I, I learned to ride a bike and had stabilizers on my bike, uh, which were terrific. You know stabilizers, right? The two little wheels that, you know, stabilizers. And, uh, so I was learning to ride my bike, and you kind of learn to ride your bike going backwards and forwards like this with stabilizers. And then my dad, and I don't know why he did this, but my dad decided that the next stage was to take one stabilizer. Did anyone else's dad do this? <laughs> he took one stabilizer off. So there we go, now you, you've graduated, son. You're onto one stabilizer driving. Which, of course, so I just got on the bike and went, <laughs> fell over. And then, obviously, learnt to then just to lean one way. <laughs> doesn't help. didn't help me at all. So I, I, I then learned to cycle just with one stabiliser. And then Dad said, now we'll take that stabiliser off. And then I just, and then learn. <laughs> so I could have just have gone straight to the learning. But anyway. Um, now I think a lot of people imagine that grace is like stabilisers. It kind of gets you going in the Christian life. You know, God gets you going. But then it's over to you. You've got to keep yourself going. And bit by bit, we kind of take the stabilizers away and say, oh, perhaps I can go on and perhaps I can go. No. 
Do you not see, right? You're called, it starts with him, you're loved, it's all because of him, and you're kept, it's going to continue through him. Don't take the stabilizers off. Whatever you do, at no point go, think I can take it from here? We need him from beginning, middle, and end. Called, loved, kept. Now can I say, that's the heart of the gospel. That is the glory. That is what God has done for us. And that is why in verse 2 we can enjoy mercy, peace, and love in abundance. When we, re- when we recognize that that faith is so precious. But now let's have a quick look at the threat. So I want you to see now, we've seen the heart of the gospel. He starts, Jude starts by saying, Here's the, this is what it's all about. Now let's pick up from verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. I love Jude. I love the fact he's eager. I don't think sometimes I'm very eager to do that. I, I love a bit of eagerness. It's nice when you see someone who's eager. He's very eager. He loves the gospel. He wants to write to them about it. He's like, I want to write to you about this gospel, this salvation. But, he says, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's people. Here's the thing that is worth fighting for. Not to be apathetic. Not to, oh, I can't be bothered to turn up to vote. Not to be apathetic about this, but to be serious, to be <coughs> eager, to be contending, to be fighting for this thing. And it's a definite thing that we're fighting for. This faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. It's not a thing that keeps changing. It's like, oh, well, one minute it's this, one minute it's this. Here it is. It's written down for us in this book. This is where we find the faith entrusted to God's holy people. This is what we fight for. And this is what is continually under threat. So see exactly what's going on that Jude is writing to. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're sneaky, see? These aren't people who've walked in going... We are enemies. We've come to destroy you. There's a subtlety. I realise no enemies really. (laughs) But there's a subtlety that has crept into the church. And this is why Jude is saying you've got to be alert. You've got to wake up. You've got to see what's going on. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago secretly slipped in. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our own sovereign and Lord. Now look, honestly, right? When I went through those three things, called, loved and kept, wasn't there a little bit of you that was going, don't I have to do anything? Called, loved, get... seriously? You mean, he calls me, he loves me, not because of anything in me, it's not very hard to push that into a place where you go, this is terrific. I can do exactly what I can live however I want. It becomes a license for immorality, for immorality. It becomes an excuse to live in a way which is wrong. A license is something that gives you permission to do something. They've taken this beautiful gospel and they've said, 
here's your license. One of my kids this week was given a pen license at school. It means he's now licensed to use a pen. I'll be checking you've all got your pen licenses. <laughs> you your, otherwise you should still be using a pencil. So your pen license gives you permission to use a pen. What they've done is they've taken the grace of God called love kept and they've turned it into an excuse to live however you want. Just live how you want. It doesn't matter. God will love you anyway. Don't be so serious about sin. Don't be so boring. It doesn't matter. And Jude is writing to say, this gospel, this grace is far too precious to allow anyone to pervert it, to distort it, to twist it. Because as soon as you do that, you deny Jesus Christ. You trash him, you deny him. You, you rob him of all of his glory and work. And I wonder whether, as we go through this letter of Jude, we need to be praying, Lord, teach me to fight for this. I think we can be far too apathetic. We can shrug our shoulders and say, oh well. Jude is writing to say, you've got to contend. You've got to fight for this gospel. You've got to hold to this gospel. You've got to have a bit of backbone that says, come on, we can't just... Oh, we just wave the white flag, don't we? Surrender and say, oh, it's too hard. I can't be bothered to really get into a big fight about it. There's things that we need to hold on to and stand up for, defend, guard, protect. And that is what Jude is going to show us as we go through his letter. And we're going to get into details, we'll get into practicalities of how we do that. doesn't mean we all get stroppy and go around fighting each other. These aren't things we fight about, they're things we fight for. That's a big difference. Plenty of Christians want to fight about stuff. That's nonsense. We don't want to do that. We want to fight for the gospel and the truth. But as we go through, let's pray that we'd have such a grip. Well, actually, that the gospel would have such a grip on us that we would delight to fight for it that we would see there really is something worth fighting for, something worth being passionate about, something worth getting bothered about, something worth living our lives for. That's what we're going to see as we go through this letter of Jude. But as we finish, let's, let's pray together. Let's pray that God would help us just to take those three words. And in a moment, we're going to share communion. We're going to eat bread and we're going to drink wine. And we're going to say, Jesus, thank you that you called me. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you keep me. Let's enjoy that together. That's good news. That's worth getting excited about. That's worth fighting for. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. And then we're going to respond. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that this, this gospel, this, this faith that was once and for all entrusted to us, this wonderful salvation that is written down for us in your word, we thank you that it teaches us that we're called, loved, kept. Thank you for the security that we find there. And Father, we pray that we would learn to be people who contend for this faith.
who are bothered about it, who take it seriously, who want to understand it better so that we can speak about it better, so that we can share it better, so that we can contend for it. But this afternoon, Father, as we come to your table, as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, Father, we pray that we might delight and rejoice in this heart of this gospel. Father, thank you for Jesus. Amen.